Welcome to the Lion's Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk by a student of Lama Yeshe Jinpa was recorded during a regularly scheduled Sunday service. Normally, uh, this Sunday would be my Sunday off, but since uh, I haven't heard Jackie uh, give a talk yet, uh, I'm here to support her. <laughs> this is very traditional, so uh, I had to give a lot of Dharma talks with um, my teachers listening, and um, they didn't just critique me at, afterwards privately, they'd interrupt me right in the middle. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to do that, I'm very grandmotherly, um, but that, that could happen, I guess. Can you hear me in back okay? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the title of these Sunday um, meetings are Shambhala Journey. Shambhala is um, a Buddhist pure land or a Buddhist paradise uh, or Buddha field. Usually uh, the Buddhist um, pure lands are a little bit like uh, heaven realms because um, people are just meditating all the time and. Uh, no other descriptions are given, right? They're listening, teachings, and meditating. Um, and everything's kind of uh, very, well, heavenly. Um, but in the Shambhala um, uh, practice, uh, the Pure Land is a functioning society, actual community. So yeah, that is both mythological or sacred and practical and ordinary at the same time. So uh, that, in, in many parts of Asia, particularly in Mongolia and, uh, and, and in India, but Mongolia and Tibet in particular, that's become the model for uh, compassionate community. And uh, that's what uh, we're going to hear from Jackie today. The Shambhala uh, community uh, also combines sacred and secular practices and dharma. Um, Even though I was a religion major at college, it's hard to define exactly what is secular, what's sacred. It feels sacred when we have paintings and bowing uh, and ritual like that, but if we grew up um, and are living in a temple or monastery, it would feel fairly ordinary, actually. But nevertheless, there is some distinction. um, And I would say maybe sacred is a little bit non-ordinary, pointing to non-ordinary, and secular pointing to ordinary. Ordinary meaning we can see it with ordinary consciousness or ordinary enhancement of consciousness through um, microscopes or through uh, some investigation. But sacred takes some special kind of uh, inner development. That's what's a little tricky about Buddhism. It says, yeah, we're just, we want to see things as they are, but you actually have to go through some inner uh, yogas. You have to go through some transformation of consciousness to see things as they actually are. So in our tradition, what is reality is not a description of an outer world, but reality is defined as uh, the world that a Buddha sees. So here, like last week, uh, Dr. Altshuler was here, and uh, I know I really enjoyed that talk. 
that would be part of Shambhala because of healing. Um, we, we've had other people give uh, talks from uh, Theravada and Zen lineages. Uh, uh, Colleen's given a talk, correct? From psychology. Um, and Andrew's blended both together at the same time. Uh, I'd be happy if we had like a talk on really good car maintenance, right? Anybody read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance in the past? That could be Dharma too, like, well, how to take care of your world, how to maintain things. So uh, if it's liberating, if it's telling the truth, if it's creating compassion in society, then it's part of uh, that Shambhala vision, part of authentic Dharma. So I'm very committed at this temple and this uh, lineage to promote uh, you know, scientific dharma, you, don't, you can come on some night or some morning, you don't have to do any prayers, you don't have to believe anything, you can be even kind of critical or skeptical, and you could come here and be very religious at the same time at different times. We, we're big enough to do both, what do you think? Can we do it? It's difficult to do, actually. It's very quite ambitious, because there, there's pulls on both sides. But I enjoy that kind of energy, and I'm, I'm going to promote it more. Also, everyone here um, should be thinking, particularly um, if you have something to say, that I might call upon you to say something. <laughs> so when people are giving talks, uh, it doesn't mean that everything they're saying is brilliant, uh, or the talk is excellent, or they're not um, missing things. It's just good uh, to do, uh, to get out, prepare a talk, and to give a talk and give, get feedback, don't you think? Mm -hmm. So I call this Dharma Toastmasters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, it, it's important to hear from various disciplines, you know, psychology, medicine, and law, you know. So in, in Shambhala, there are attorneys, right? We need attorneys, do you agree? Everyone says, oh, I don't like attorneys. I really like attorneys. I, I came from an attorney family. And um, our attorneys were, uh, we, we didn't trial attorneys. Everybody wanted to go into like wills and trusts, right? So every family wants to have, you know, like you want to have your assets, you know, protected, right? Everybody wants to have, you know, pass on uh, things to their family. Everybody wants, to have uh, you know, justice, and everyone wants to have that. So uh, I'm very happy that uh, we have people participating, you know, that, that our attorney's here, you know, Connor's here, and, and, and Carl's here, and uh, that's been extremely helpful. So, you know, and Shambhala, they're, they're attorneys, that's good, right? <laughs> there's therapists, right? So, they just uh, don't, hurt. don't go to trial. Huh? They don't go to trial. There, there might be trials. There's creative conflict, you know. This, like, so there's always stuff that comes up, but we work through it. So I know Jackie's very interested in, uh, you know, justice and reconciliation. I'm going to talk to that. Um, this therapist in Shambhala, right? Because even with the blissful wisdom mind, if you're in a relationship, there's always something. <laughs> so I, years ago, uh, a Lama friend of mine was getting married, and I said, uh, after Mahamudra becomes marriage. 
<laughs> you can totally be a Buddha, a wisdom mind, and if you're in close relationship with people, there's always something. So uh, I'd, I'd be happy to be in therapy like every day. I mean, I want to have something to talk about every day, right? <laughs> because uh, particularly with uh, my license and, you know, I'm always talking about relationships, right? And that is primarily what abbots do. Uh, I do talk about maintenance, but primarily uh, I'm in charge of the relationships. It's still a head-scratcher, right? Every situation is new, so you need the wisdom mind for that. So uh, I want to say positive things about what we see as secular disciplines actually are extremely important. We need them. We need car mechanics in, in Shambhala, right? There might be electric cars or they might run on, you know, Shambhala photons. <laughs> they're going to break down, right? Well, everything that has a form, has a side, is made up of parts, it's going to break down, right? So, you know, we need... We need fashion, right? Yes. You know, we need cleaners, right? Uh, I'm delighted Jackie's here today. And, um, I've given her a little time to, to think about what she wants to say immediately, because even when you prepare things, uh, new things come up. Don't you think so, Jackie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah OK, but now is your time. OK, great. <laughs> yeah, thanks, everyone, for being here. I see some folks who. Uh, from meditation night, which I'm, I'm really happy about. I co-facilitate the Wednesday night um, shamatha meditation, and so that's really nice. This feels very different. Um, back in the dojo, we're all sitting in a circle, and we're all sharing, um, and I really just feel like a, a facilitator, and this feels very different. Um, yeah, I was thinking if I had it my way, I'd be up here with a hoodie on and uh, smoking cigarettes, but I don't smoke anymore, so <laughs> I was thinking about that one. Um, uh, you know, if, if, if you're going to smoke, you have to be able to blow it out through your fingers. Um, so maybe, maybe someday, <laughs> maybe, maybe someday I'll be able to do that again. Um, but that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to be able to smoke again. I'm here to, um, to share my experiences. And... As Lama said, and I, I, I really am grateful for, um, for his, his introduction, um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Shambhala and, uh, and some of the ways that we can move towards Shambhala in our, in our daily lives. And so some direct experience that, um, that I've had uh, in social justice movements, um, as well as conflict resolution, those are some things that I'm going to be talking a little bit about today. So I really want to encourage people to be interactive. I love when people ask questions. That kind of helps me break up like my focus. And I think it's, it's good. And um, I just like interaction. So please, if you have a question, just pop your hand up. It doesn't have to be in the traditional Q&A section. Cool. So something Lama has mentioned a lot about is the tendency for, for Western Westerners to kind of go towards that cowboy yogi. Um, so that's the, the tendency to see ourselves as, as individuals, we're not part of a community, we want to do this on our own, stubbornly, right? Um, so that's kind of like the, the aspect that is without the Sangha, like we feel like we don't need the Sangha. Um, 
This can also take the form of, of us using Buddhism in a solely psychoanalytic way, where there's some kind of distance and separation between one's internal and, and external worlds. So we, we can kind of think that, okay, I'm just gonna become a Buddha, have my own personal liberation, and leave like the mess of everyone else behind. Like, I, I don't want that, right? Um, so and actually what underlies that tendency is, um, as Lama was talking to me about in Darshan recently, um, was this kind of elitism that keeps us stuck in this like self-imposed isolation. Like, okay, I'm too good for that. I'm gonna go and do this on my own. So this elitist view of ourselves and, and our liberation as separate from others is it perpetuates this negativity and kind of discouragement that keeps us from developing bodhicitta. Um, so, I'm gonna move this up. So bodhicitta, um, as I understand it, is our motivation to support others and bring liberation to all. Is that generally the case? And become awake. <laughs> and become awake. Okay. So, um, and able to, in order to broaden and expand our capacity to help others, we have to move out of this very enclosed, individualistic approach um, and get messy with the work of liberation of not just self, but, but also others. And that's why we're here in community in Sangha. Um, so an important aspect of my life has been social justice work. Um, so from when I was a kid, I, I did a lot of uh, thinking and uh, support around homelessness in my community. Um, I also, in college, was involved in a lot of um, uh, activism around the fee hikes at the college where a lot of people weren't able to go to school because it was too expensive. Um, I've done a lot of uh, racial justice work in Sacramento. Um, so I actually came to Temple after a month of this very long campaign um, around uh, social justice. And I was super burnt out. I was looking for refuge. Um, and, you know, I was searching for a path that I could find, you know, a way to engage with the world um, that wasn't this like stressful, like hard, just always difficult um, and conflictual uh, relationship to the world. So something that has kind of led me to Buddhism has been my interest in anarchism throughout my life. Um, so on a general scope, anarchism is a lens in which we can begin to imagine a new world and political realm. So we imagine a society where people are liberated from class structures, racism, patriarchy, etc. Um, there's also heavily the concept of mutual aid. So mutual aid is um, our reliance and solidarity with others, um, where you know giving uh, support. Uh, um, food, clothing, shelter, there's this, this concept of being able to, to truly support each other. Um, and I see that as being interdependence, right? Is that we all rely on each other. Um, we're not alone in this world. We really depend on each other to survive, right? So being both an anarchist and a Buddhist, um, I spend a lot of time imagining both in everyday 
daydreaming as well as um, the tantric practice, the worlds that I want to be in and embody. Um, both Buddhism and anarchism really challenged me to look at ways that I am inhibiting movement towards a more liberated world and towards Shambhala. Um, that could be looking at maybe how I'm subconsciously harboring sexist, racist, ableist, homophobic views from this culture um, that could limit my ability to create social change, or perhaps that I'm holding on to aggression, anger, and ignorance as, as a means to an end. Um, I feel like my journey, both politically and spiritually, has been a lot about finding ways to deconstruct how I perpetuate harm, both to myself and others, and then from there, how to move forward with compassion for myself and compassion for others. Does anyone have any questions, comments? I'm going to take a drink. Sounds great. Uh, I was just wondering, Jackie, what is your educational background? What are your qualifications to do the work that you do? Mm, um, I don't have qualifications. <laughs> I, I'm, I mean, I, I, you know, I went to university, but um, so the work I do is really just community organizing. I should have expressed that a little bit more. Um, so it's not like through like a um, organization or anything like that. It's just grassroots organizing. Yeah. So this is kind of, yeah, please. Um, I too have been a lot in social. Hi. Um, I too have been a lot um, practicing certain ways that I can deconstruct the perpetuation of harm, like you said. What are some of the like physical acts besides meditation and prayer that you've done to kind of deconstruct those things? To deconstruct harm? Yeah. Um, so I will be talking a little bit more about um, later on in the talk about transformative justice and also nonviolent communication strategies. Um, so I'm going to give you guys some tools. That's something that I like to do, is tools to, to, to come away with. Um, but yes, I mean, my, my meditation practice has really transformed uh, how I am in relation with other people. And that's including people who have done me harm, whether it's just you know cutting me off on the freeway, um, or whether that's someone who's uh, really aggressive, or whatever it is. Um, I'm really able to not just be in that reactive space. Um, there's that kind of distance that my meditative practices put in between me receiving a negative, whatever negative thing it is that I, you know, I perceive it as, and then my response. Um, so yeah, thank you for that question. I'm definitely gonna get a little bit more, more into that. Yeah. So. Was there another one over here? Oh, I have yeah. one. Um, should I take the mic or are we not going to? Thank you. So, um, thank you for the talk. It's been really great so far. Um, so, I was wondering, you know, from, you've talked about how you deal with your personal biases towards others and how you can better yourself, but I was also wondering how you deal with um, people who prefer to wallow in ignorance in a way. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you can elaborate on that further, because I know in the past I've kind of, you know, been angry towards them and decided yeah. not to deal with them in a sense. Totally. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that were. That one's super hard. Um, I mean, I think the, the development of, of bodhicitta and um, 
and compassion for others is it's the only way that I that I can see a way through that. Um, because of course there's people who do hideous things, you know, and people who want to stay there too. Um, and that's very hard. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm going to be talking a little bit about that too. Um, but yeah, that is that's an excellent question, and I think it's just continuing the the practice, the training. Um, it becomes easier to love those people, and you might. It doesn't mean that you like invite them into your house and <laughs> like, you know. I mean, maybe so. I don't know. But you you obviously keep safe, right? Um, but we can still love those people and and work towards a world where. Um, yeah, it's easier <laughs> to get along. Yeah. Um, so Lama encouraged me to look into folks who are already and have been doing uh, Buddhist social justice work. Um, since I have this tendency to be like, I'm the only one. I'm the only like. I'm the only anarchist Buddhist. I'm the only Buddhist who's ever done any social justice work. You know, like that kind of ridiculous uh, mindset, right? It's very much the cowboy mindset. Like, oh, I'm the only one. Um, so he he sent or he, he gave me some some folks to to look up, and one of them was uh, Joanna Macy. Has anyone heard of Joanna Macy? Oh, she's awesome. Okay, so she's um, she's been doing work uh, around the issue of nuclear proliferation and like ecological damage and kind of the moral uh, and uh, spiritual crisis that we're in. Um, facing a potentially demolished world, right? Like, um, and this one quote that I thought was really helpful is. What? <coughs> turn off the other mic. Oh. Okay. So, um, a quote that I thought was really helpful from her is, um, "Of all the dangers we face, from climate chaos to nuclear war." None is so great as the deadening of our response. So she writes a lot about how we have a choice in how we view our reality. And we have a choice about the version of reality that we are in and the dangers of despair. So choosing our reality is very importantly, it doesn't mean that um, we're going to be a totally different person, or we're going to live in a totally different world where um, these types of conflicts are not happening. But it's rather, um, as, as Lama said to me in Darshan, um, is that we can choose to create our vision of Shambhala, and that, moving towards that, changes our reality and how we experience the world right now. We have to believe that Shambhala, that an enlightened society, that compassionate communities are possible. Um, so if we assume that everything is just, if we're screwed, there's no hope, we should just keep what we're doing in isolation from others, and then, you know, like, as the world's falling apart. Um, but again, this will create that exact reality for ourselves and for others. If we just believe that you know that's the way it is and keep going with that, um, 
and it limits our, our ability to help others, right? By thinking that there is no hope. So Buddhism has really taught me, and it, it teaches us to be alive to the world and its suffering. Um, a large aspect of my, my personal political organizing um, is against greed, consumerism, uh, consumption. So another word for that might be capitalism. But those <laughs> some might want to argue with me on that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to call out my roommate. My roommate asked me, are you just going to like be telling people to stop consuming and crap? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, let's reduce that. <laughs> but um, of huge importance, again, is not, um, it's not just being against something. It's not just being against greed. I'm against consumerism. Um, it's really imagining, well, what world do we want? What, what society do we want? And how would it look without this very imbalanced approach to limited resources, right? We live in a world where resources are, are limited. Um, so Thich Nhat Hanh, and I'm sure more people are familiar with, with Thich Nhat Hanh. I see like a <laughs> hallelujah there. Um, so his engaged Buddhism uh, provides a framework for, for folks who are interested in imagining this world. Um, there's the, he has these 14 precepts. And I highly recommend looking them up. They're, they're super interesting and rad. Um, I'll read a few of them. So, uh, do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. Do not take as the aim of your life fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. So those are they're just a couple of the, the precepts that, um, that Thich Nhat Hanh has created for engaged Buddhism. And I think what they do is really map out a way towards Shambhala. And I think um, how we would kind of just naturally be as inhabitants of Shambhala, um, compassionate, engaged open, um, willing to help, willing to support. Um, so, so two other folks that I'm, I'm really interested in, in their work um, in engaged Buddhism is Lama Rod Owens and Dr. Angel Kyoto Williams, and they've written a book, Radical Dharma. So they propose new ways of being in relation to each other, truly beyond categories of race, class, gender, etc. So they make it very clear that while we recognize that those categories are inherently empty, of in, or are ultimately empty of inherent existence, we don't just brush them under the rug, right? We don't just say, well, I don't see race, or you know, I, don't, um, I don't see gender, all these things that uh, folks might have a tendency to want to say, right? Because we do, want, we do want the ultimate reality to be present, where we all are equal, which is the truth. But regardless of this, those categories have a profound impact on how we are treated in this world, how we are seen. Um, and the material, social, emotional, political limitations on certain groups of people are going to be different based on those categories that are put on us. Um, 
So I imagine Shambhala is a place where these categories don't oppress us or make us feel and act differently towards each other. But of course, those differences are going to be there and are still here. And on our journey to Shambhala, we will all have to engage in some deep processing around how those categories have situated us within the world and how we can move from that spot towards a more empathic and compassionate space. So we can't just bypass that work, right? Um, just as Lama says that, you know, we would never tell someone who's just lost someone, like lost a, a partner to, to death or whatever, um, that like, well, that's okay, because it's like they don't exist anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> like we would never do that. Um, so, so we can't just bypass people's experiences here, um, whether it's, you know, racial, gender difference, LGBT difference, all those things, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say, well, those things don't matter because we're all equal. Um, we need to be conscious of how those things really have an impact on our experience. Um, so that's like the first part. We're gonna move on to some tools in a minute, but I, I just wanna pause for some questions right now to see if there, there's anything. Looks like we're ready to move forward. Okay. Okay. I realized that I didn't. I didn't pass out. I made little like hands out handouts. So I was hoping that maybe Michelle, someone else could, could hand out. Yeah, they're small. I'm sorry. And they're also like <sighs> word documents are so frustrating. And I was trying to make them like even, so you'll see like the where I had to cut was weird. Some people's words might be a little bit cut off, but okay. And I think what I'll do next time is I'll make some that are bigger because I totally realized that some people can't read that small now, so it's good for me to know. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's a little ageist of me. I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> um, so as I've been kind of hinting at, thank you. Um, yes, there's going to be plenty extras, and I'm guessing that people might want to bring these home to like partners or friends on how to communicate better. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll put them up as a friend. So, as I've been kind of hinting at, um, it's not just enough to have our own personal liberation. Um, and I, I feel like if, if we're practicing and developing bodhicitta, it's really not possible for us to just want liberation for ourselves. It's, just, it's, it's against kind of what our, all of our prayers and stuff are, right? Um, the training itself is transformative. And as bodhisattvas, we we engage in the difficult work of being in community with others, and not just those we like. Um, I'm very interested in conflict resolution and some work that's being done in transformative justice. Um, and I, I see these as steps towards Shambhala. And I'll talk a little bit more about, about each of those. Um, so conflict happens when we are out of balance with our environment and each other. and. Um, to me, it sounds like Shambhala is, is a place where balance is restored. And, um, and it sounds like, you know, there's these 
there's still going to be those roles in place that support us in, in bringing balance, uh, a balanced world. So conflict resolution is one way that we can support balance in our lives and our world. Um, conflict is not inherently bad, right? Um, it's how we kind of are raised and approach conflict that can feel really bad. Um, but really, uh, conflict can be transformative. Uh, and transformative justice itself is, is a community-based approach to harm or crime that limits the use of force and violence as a response to that originating harm. Um, for smaller scale issues, it's encouraged that smaller responses are used. Um, so for example, on the sheet I gave you, um, this is kind of like the basics of nonviolent communication. So on the front, you'll see affective statements. Um, does anyone have like experience with nonviolent communication approaches or these types of things? Yeah. You should all say yes. <laughs> so this is a little bit like like kind of a structure because we all know how we want to engage with people compassionately, but sometimes when we're like in the middle of it and stressed and like uh, having a difficult time, we, we're not always going to remember what to do. So it's nice to have a little bit of structure and practice, right? Um, so, uh, you know, if you're in conflict with someone and you're, you, you want to be able to talk about it, um, you have an observation. So when I see, hear, notice, or whatever, this, um, then I feel a feeling because I need or value one of these universal needs and then a request would you be willing to and then in parentheses it's kind of funny it's these things that are like I don't know if I can actually do that so an observation free of judgment or opinion that's really hard <laughs> and uh, uh, let's see a request free of demands so kind of think about how, like how how do we you know, have a request that's free of a demand? Or how can I make an observation that doesn't include like my opinion about this person? It's just a, a straight up observation. So obviously these are just like really short snippets, so I recommend you like research a little bit, but it's super helpful for getting across like this is what hurts me and why, and here's what I need. Um, on the back is a little bit about active listening. So that's if someone comes to you with a concern um, or they're feeling conflicted about something that, that you've done or said or whatever, this is kind of how you want to engage with that. Um, so looking at the person, validating the person, um, don't try to solve the issue, uh, withhold judgment, listen, restate and reflect what you hear. Know that it's okay to make mistakes. Don't move into blame and criticism and shame. Um, and show appreciation for the person. And I think active listening is just how we should be with people anyways. Uh, but this is especially helpful for when you're uh, receiving information that might feel, uh, feel difficult to listen to. So that's just one, yes, question. You know, Statement. I, I work with a population that often has a difficult time getting their thoughts outside of them. And I think this applies across the, I think it applies across the board though. But let the other person or people who you are speaking to finish. 
-hmm. Let them tell you that they're done. It's just so easy to imagine or to find the end of where you think that that person is going, and they may not even be anywhere near it yet. Yeah. So if you can try to just not speak. Yeah. I think it would be a great deal. I also feel, using the other side of these cards, I feel the need for a collective imagination. You know, it's you and I can imagine what Shambhala will be just fine, but if all 50 of us in here did it, mm -hmm. well, that's really doing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, use your tools. <laughs> they work. <laughs> we had Renee up here. Uh, I was just going to say, Jackie, that I really, really do like this, um, you know, giving us tools. Because a lot of times, um, you know, I go to a college where there's lots of social activism and all that. You know, they, they tell you all the problems but they never give you any tools. It's just kind of, oh, you, you need to figure that out on your own. <laughs> so, you know, it, you know, sometimes it's just kind of depressing, but yeah. when you're given tools, it makes you feel a lot more empowered. And, yeah. yeah, so I just wanted to say, you know, this good stuff right here. Awesome. <laughs> totally, yeah, happy to, happy to provide that. Maybe we can do one more question and then I'm gonna keep going because I've got a couple more pages. I just wanted to say um, on the on the topic of tools, and this is a fantastic talk, and is near and dear to my heart. All I can tell you, we've talked about these same subjects many times over the years. Um, I would like to suggest Tonglin, mm. uh, the giving and receiving practice. And just as a small plug, I, uh, there's a Tonglin group on the third Friday evening of every month. But uh, for those people who you find challenging, uh, it's a really excellent remedy. Really suggest that. Yeah, that question that Jules had. Yeah, that's a great way to, to develop that. Cool, thank you. So, um, kind of the work that, that I'm moving towards is, is working with people who have um, done harm on kind of a, a larger scale. So not just like that kind of um, like interpersonal, like I'm stressed out with you, I'm annoyed with you type thing, where you'd use this kind of first line of defense, right? Um, but something where a person is really harmed, like maybe car got stolen, maybe there was like, uh, um, you know, someone got beat up, it was these kind of things. Um, so the person who has been harmed can choose to use a transformative justice process to confront this person who did the harm within the context of a, a, a community of support. Um, so both individuals have supporters who are there involved in the process. It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that the supporters of the perpetrator um, support the incident, right? But they do support that person. Um, so both get to say what happened in the situation, how it's affected them, what they feel they need to move forward. Um, the transformative piece also guides the perpetrator of the harm to see what forces in their life have possibly contributed um, to them engaging in negative harmful behaviors. Perhaps they experienced abuse as a child or have received like continual negative messages about 
um, how you impose masculinity in, in the world, um, or maybe they live in an impoverished neighborhood where resources are limited, things like this. And of course, those forces don't excuse the harm that was done, um, but they do help the perpetrator to soften to their own experience. Um, and I think this really, it helps folks develop empathy, um, and it also allows them to move forward towards change and reparation, kind of knowing where you come from. So the other deeply transformative piece lies in the ability to face one another, encourage, um, and listen to each other's experience. Of course, as with any practice, the ideal version is not always going to happen. That's part of the practice. Um, a transformative justice approach is not going to fit every conflict. Um, and also, as, as we're saying here, is that you know, smaller scale conflicts, you want to you use a smaller scale um, intervention. Um, the process is also gradual. Um, and that's, that's the way it is, or it's gradual, um, in order to hold compassion for all the emotions and strain it puts on people who are involved. Um, and, and a major conflict or harm is not healed right away. Resolution really takes time and sometimes physical space to allow for breathing room. Uh, and sometimes we have to settle with a conflict not being resolved in a way that we want it to, or the results might feel unsatisfying. Connor gave a talk a, several, uh, a few months ago about the new uh, conflict resolution program that, that the temple's using. And he, he really brought up this great point about that the process is not necessarily about, it's not about fact finding. Um, it's more about bringing people back to center again um, so that they can move forward together compassionately and as a community. So I know what it's like to be on both sides of this discussion, and I think everyone knows what it's like to experience harm and, um, and perpetrate harm. So when it's actually brought up, when a harm is you know, brought up and out in the open, it can be very uncomfortable. Um, it's vulnerable. It's painful. Um, and conflict resolution doesn't always feel good. Uh, it really challenges to look, it challenges us to look at our role in the situation. It challenges the community to look at how um, it might be uh, perpetrating uh, harm just through the way the community is structured. Um, so for me, you know, it's important to think in terms of the ultimate, too, where it's like, okay, this self that I'm holding on to and that is being kind of like put under pressure right now, I know that it doesn't ultimately exist, but um, I have a responsibility here in this conventional world and to see where I can, I can change to be of more support to others. Um, and I think having that sense of self-challenge through conflict, through compassionate and creative conflict, as long as saying, um, is really, it's liberating. Um, it is rich with complexity. Uh, it gives us the opportunity to practice what, we've, what we really learn through meditative training with, you know, the patience, ease, curiosity, compassion, equanimity, empathy. Um, and the awareness of others' suffering and that it's not separate from our own. So one of, one of my future goals is that I, I really want to work in conflict resolution and, and also just work with folks 
who have uh, been involved in white supremacist uh, activity. Um, so that's really kind of the path that I want to take, and and it's hard for me because I've I've lived, you know, a good chunk of my life really uh, uh, actively fighting against that those people, and I don't think that that's enough, right? We need to engage in a way that's um, recognizing that people who perpetrate harm are also harmed, and that's very hard. Um, and they need healing as much as, you know, as much as everyone does. So, that kind of struggle for me is, is, has really kind of come up recently in just recognizing, you know, that I have to believe that people who do harm, people who engage in this kind of violence and hatred, um, are capable of becoming a Buddha. And that's been very hard for me. <laughs> um, but we all have Buddha nature. Um, we have to believe that people are inherently good and can make change. And this isn't a soft approach. You know, I've had people kind of um, hear, like, you know, transformative justice. You know, just send them to jail. Like, if they harm you, just send them to jail. But this isn't a soft approach. It's really hard, challenging work that demands us to look at how we deal with things that hurt us and make us uncomfortable. Um, and it doesn't leave us, you know, defenseless, doormats. You know, I don't, I don't believe that either. Um, but we do approach each and every individual with compassion and empathy, recognizing their Buddha nature and our interdependence with them. Um, a particular strain of, of anarchist thought that I find really attractive, likely due to its, you know, its congruence with Buddhism, um, really encourages us to acknowledge that within each of us, no matter how liberal we see ourselves, um, lies our very own fascist, our own racist, our own interrogator. Um, that interrogator voice was something that Lama brought up during a talk recently. Uh, by getting to know these voices, we, be we can begin to see also that social change on a political scale in itself is of course not enough. We can't just point the finger outward and hope that our inner demons won't come out and show their faces. We must engage in transformative work with ourselves through our training in order to change our relationship to those inner demons and to see reflections of ourselves, our fears, our insecurities, and our ignorance in those we call our enemies. So all of this can feel very heavy at times. Um, it can feel like I'm never doing enough um, and that I'll never be able to do enough. Um, social change moves so slowly while you know we see the climate changing so rapidly. Um, I, I start to freak out a little bit if I think about that for too long. <laughs> um, but something Lama reminded me of again is really to remember with sincerity that uh, that Shambhala is possible that compassionate peaceful society is possible and and that feels really urgent for me to to remind myself that we must believe that it's possible and at the same time yeah yeah I'm almost done yeah okay um, and so at the same time Lama reminded me of the importance of patience and remembering that, that it's a long game. Um, so 
Tantric practice can help us embody those, you know, those entities of, um, you know, compassion and, and uh, compassionate action um, and the world that we want to envision and, and to help us move forward. Um, and something he, he really reminded me of is, is not to compartmentalize those two worlds, you know, the world of the mythic and then the world of the conventional. Um, really trying, I'm trying not to compartmentalize those and see them as, well, this is, this is all, all here, um, not to create a split. So we can't expect society to transform without transforming ourselves. Um, and we need to avoid despair and discouragement as much as possible. And I think it's a challenge that we all need to take on. Um, if we're going to uh, to see a liberated society, um, so yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. Remember that it's possible, and um, and engage compassionately <laughs> with yourself and others. Um, yeah. Very good. <laughs> This has been a Lion's Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org.